Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We are just going to say it loud and proud. We absolutely love pasta. It can be fancy. It can be simple. It's a weeknight go-to or a Sunday supper with family. It's the pride of Italian cuisine and with very good reason. Ahead on Seasoned, we're exploring pasta with expert pasta makers. We talk with the owners of an Avon pasta shop and cafe where inclusivity is at the heart of their business. And we meet a TikTok star chef who pops up at the most unexpected places to make pasta dough, like in the middle of Times Square or at a Walmart. But first, our first guest started making egg dough fettuccine when she was 12 years old when she got a pasta machine from her mother. Years later, after spending time in Italy apprenticing in the art of pasta making, Missy Robbins became famous for the handcrafted pastas she'd served as a young chef First at Spiaggia in Chicago in 2003, and then at Avoce in New York in 2008. Today, she's serving beautifully made pastas in her own restaurants. Missy Robbins is the James Beard award-winning chef-owner of the acclaimed Lilia and Missy Restaurants in Brooklyn. She's the author, along with Talia Baiocchi, of the new book, Pasta, the spirit and craft of Italy's greatest food with recipes. We talked with Missy about the craft and her food influences, which include New Haven, by the way. Chef Missy Robbins, thanks so much for joining Seasoned. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. This book is a tome. It arrived in the mail. I was very excited. Mm-hmm. My family was like, I've never seen a Bible like that. I said, yes, we will worship at the altar of pasta tonight. <laughs> Congratulations on the book and everything Thank else. You. But I want to start at the beginning, which for you is in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah. What kind of food influence did you have growing up in a place that's world renowned for its pizza? Well, I grew up in a Jewish family, kosher home. I grew up right outside New Haven in North Haven. New Haven, as you know, is is a very Italian-American community. And I grew up lucky enough to be exposed to that in a family that really loved food. And so while I grew up with sort of like a lot of, you know, traditional Jewish holidays and stuff like that, on, on the outskirts of that was sort of daily life, which was going to awesome pizza places and whether they were in like, you know, our, our family kind of weekly uh, pizza place was a place called Bomonti's in Hamden, Connecticut. And Bomonti's, you know, had amazing big ziti and amazing, the pizza was great. I mean, it was, it was home to me. My dad would always get like meatball subs because he wasn't allowed to have them at home because they weren't kosher or so. And then obviously Sally's was sort of my, my favorite pizza place. There was a, a place called Tony and Lucille's on Worcester Street, New Haven, that made incredible fried calzones. One of my that was like one of my favorites. I was a really picky eater, by the way. Like no parsley, no sauce, no vegetables. I was like awful. I still kind of am in a in a weird way. Probably like the greatest family memory was a place called Leon's, really like in the depths of New Haven. I couldn't even tell you where it is. My dad was like, a, I don't know how he did this, but he became a pretty big regular and we walk in. My, my dad's a, a doctor and they would always say, hey, doc, what's up? And they would always have a table for us. And we would just eat these giant plates of like fettuccine Alfredo and 
fake ziti there was awesome. This like giant platter. So like stuff like that really, really influenced me. And that's what I thought was Italian food. That's what I knew was Italian food. I didn't know anything beyond that. I didn't understand that there were 20 regions in Italy and that it went from north to south, east to west. And that came many, many years later. In the introduction to the book, Missy says that pasta making at its most basic is an act of humility. We asked her to explain what she meant by that and to talk with us about how her early experiences as a chef shaped the way she cooks now. There's just something very, something very humble about taking eggs and flour or water and flour and making something that in the end result is extraordinary. It is a craft. It's not brain surgery. It's a craft that grandmothers all over Italy have been doing for hundreds of years. And, you know, I think it's really hard to become quote unquote, an expert in it. There's always something to learn. I've been making pasta now professionally for, you know, almost 20 years. And I still feel like I have so much I haven't done and so many shapes I haven't done and so many dishes that I don't know that it kind of keeps you in your place all the time. But also it's like what keeps it exciting because you always want to keep going. Right. But something that resonated for me because I've tried to make, I am a journalist. I am not a chef. I'm a home cook. I know my way around a kitchen. And pasta making for me is so humbling. And so to read, you say, if you want a scientific explanation of pasta, flour, and gluten, this isn't it. You have to feel it. Can you talk to us about that and what exactly the Italian concept of QB is? Because that yeah, that was like a light bulb went off for me. Yeah, that was a big, the, I'll, I'll give you that in two parts. So the, the science part of it was a, a big thing that Tali and I talked about when we were writing it, because I am not a scientific chef. I know, obviously, the principles of cooking, and I obviously wouldn't have gotten this far if I did not understand them. But I'm not, I'm certainly don't know modern techniques. Like I've never used a circulator, which is very weird, but I kind of pride myself on it. Sous vide be damned. <laughs> I'd rather teach people how to cook on a live fire. And that became something very important to me. And I chose a path and I, in some ways have always sort of, you know, felt insecure about not being that scientific person and not being able to explain the property of why a certain flower turns into this and why and how many minutes it takes and all this stuff. I, I definitely have felt insecurity, but I also have felt that it's been a very freeing way to cook because I do cook from the heart and from feel with a background in technique. But I think that heart and that feel have like kind of led me to become a, a better chef. And I think that's really what I try and teach is that like, sure, you can rattle off every property about like a temperature of water and a property of flour and you, you can rattle off whatever you want, but you can't make something like pasta without actually feeling it. And then that goes into sort of this idea of QB. So QB, I came about, I read a lot of Italian cookbooks. I don't understand. In Italian them. or in English? I was going to say. <laughs> I, I, I read that. I can, I, my, um, my food vocabulary is big enough that like I can get the base of it. I, I made like miss a couple technical steps or whatever, but like I, I can't read, but I can browse through them and understand them and like be inspired. I started reading Italian cookbooks and I was, I would always see QB, salt, QB, pepe, QB, or whatever, garlic, QB. And you know, on a, on a very basic level kind of means to taste, like we write to taste in a recipe. QB means like just enough. I sort of took that concept and have sort of translated it into like simplicity, 
what is enough and is it enough and stripping out the most essentials of what you need in a, in a recipe or in a kitchen or in a toolkit or whatever it is, just enough. Lilia was never meant to be a pasta restaurant. It was meant to be an Italian restaurant with all these components, a real Italian experience. And people just attacked the pasta. It resonated with them. And I became very known for that. But that was never my, my goal with Lilia. I really you know, wanted to strip it back remove everything unnecessary. I've been joking about this dish we used to do at one of the Avoches. They were, it was this like incredible, it was a real collaboration between my chef de cuisine there, Hillary and I, it was these uh, gorgonzola like nudie that you would like open and they would explode. And they were, we served it with apples and walnuts, but we did these, these little rings cut out of apples and they were really thin and we would dehydrate them. And then we place each one on a gnocchi. Like, I can't even like imagine <laughs> doing a dish like that. And so I really <laughs> wanted to strip away kind of all the quote unquote BS. The first dish I knew I was going to put on the menu at Lilia was the rigatoni diavola spicy red sauce, made it at my house one night by myself. And I was like, this has to go on the menu. This is what I want to serve people. And I was terrified because I was like, people are going to come here and be like, A, what the hell is she doing in Brooklyn? <laughs> and B, why is she cooking rigatoni with red sauce? Like what happened to the food that she used to do? But I had this like gut instinct that if I could make that food as good as I was making my other food, that people would want to come sit at that bar and I learned to also balance sort of that food with like, if you take the Agnolotti dish, the Agnolotti dish was inspired by this, like reading about these Sardinian ingredients of combining this sheep's milk cheese that's very much like feta with tomato and honey. And like, I had this whole idea and I worked on this dish for weeks before we opened and it kept tasting like a can of Chef Boyardee because I couldn't get it right. I wanted to do this tomato saffron sauce and when you put the honey in it, it just ended up sweet. And then I was like, I was trying so hard. I mean, this is a real process. This took weeks and this is how my brain works. And I finally like nailed this dish. I was like, all right, we got to do some dried tomatoes because we don't need so much tomato. We just need a hint of acid. And like the honey just needs to be a drizzle and we need some time to add some more savory. But that dish took weeks and weeks and weeks. It's the most popular dish on the menu and the most like my old cooking. Right. And I'm proud that it's on the menu. I was going to say, after all that work, you should be very proud that it is on the menu. And, and listening to you talk about all the, the iterations that you went through, it reminds me of, you know, our listeners who are home cooks, who li they listen to our show because they're like, oh my gosh, we have Missy Robbins on. She knows, you know, she knows all this stuff. So what can you tell them? I think, first of all, hearing this anecdote about how it took you so long to come up with one dish, it makes me feel better. I mean, it was probably agita for you, but I feel like, okay... <laughs> It's okay that I, I don't necessarily know how to do this, but what, what can you offer our listeners? I have very rarely nailed a dish on the first time. Cooking takes a lot of experimentation. It takes a lot of practice. I don't consider myself someone who was like, had natural ability. I was like good in the kitchen. I got it pretty quickly when I started working. My first job, I was fast. I was smart enough. I like, I was very observant. But it wasn't natural. I had to work really hard at it. And like in those days, you were allowed to go to the kitchen early and not get paid for it. We don't do that anymore. But I would go into work. I My schedule was at four and I would go in at 10 because that's when the chefs and sous chefs were there. And I wanted to stand next to them so I could learn as much as possible. 
for home cooks, it's the same thing. Experiment. Don't follow the recipe exactly. If you miss something, it's not going to be a disaster. You might actually end up with the best dish you've ever came up with. Even the recipe testing, a lot of the recipes in the book, maybe 50% of them were developed specifically for the book. And there's not one that I was like, okay, that's amazing. That doesn't need any tweaking. There are ones that came really close. There's the the recipe for the um, macaroni campanile with the braised short ribs and sauce. And we had eaten that in Italy. And, you know, you have this like sense memory of it and you go home and you cook it and you, you can't get it right. I probably did five to seven iterations of that before I got the right ratio of short rib to sauce to bone marrow. It takes patience. You have to be patient and not give up just because your pasta doesn't come out 100% right the first time. Does it taste good? Be happy with it. Is it need a little better texture? Do it better next time. Right? You know, it's it's I think that's where the humility comes in. Like you have to be you have to be willing to fail a little bit. I love the talking about cooking with feel because I couldn't agree more. Even doing everything from making tortillas, like spraying how it's just a feel, like you have to feel it when you're doing it and totally can relate to that. But I want to talk about flour for a second. Yeah. Because sometimes I think people tend to overthink flour, but there's basically two types of flour, right? So I use what's called double zero, a very finely ground milled flour, very soft, very tender, produces a very tender pasta. Um, and that's mm-hmm. what I use for all my egg dough. Um, and sometimes I mix in a chickpea flour or a whole wheat flour or a chestnut flour um, for flavor, texture. And then for extruded pasta and sort of sort of these hand shapes, more southern shapes, or chiette, collegiones, I came up with a, with a semolina dough. A little bit of firmer flour and, and more heft to it, more stretch to it. And you can't really make orchiette, for instance, with an egg dough with this very fine flour because there's not enough stretch to it. And if you go to kind of like make these shapes, it just breaks because it's so tender and delicate. And then semolina also goes into my extruded dough. Extruded dough is sort of mixed in a machine and then gets pushed out in the machine. And it's all kind of one process. So you're not making a dough. The dough is sort of formed as it's actually coming out. And as the machine heats up, it pushes pasta through like a dye. And that dye creates the shape. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where your spaghettis, your rigatonis, casarecce, things like that come out, cut them out of extruder. It's very hard. They're obviously hand-shaped spaghettis, but it's hard to make those kinds of pastas. And it's a different thing. Those pastas get dried. Extruded pasta is like what you get in a store. You buy a box pasta that's come through a, a commercial extruder, dried at, at very low temperatures for a very long time. It's a whole science and a whole thing. And that's sort of the three different pastas that we do. Missy, what are some of the essential tools that the home cook needs to make pasta? Because I was just looking at- Very little. I was going to say, I'm looking at your pictures and I see a lot of hands. So we need good hands. And then I don't see a a whole lot of bells and whistles. I mean, you need like a pasta sheeter, which you can get for $35, $45. Um, You can obviously get more expensive ones, but like for the starter, you can get a hand cranked $30, $40 pasta sheeter. You need a good wooden cutting board to work on. I mean, those are the two biggest things and your hands, I think, are important. And then I think you get into the other stuff, a bench scraper, a rolling pin. Some of the the more basic tools are great starting places too. A a guitarra is an 
antique pasta tool that, that has guitar strings and you can roll out square spaghetti on it and really make something very special. I think gnocchi boards are very inexpensive and you can make really cool shapes from gnocchi to lots of things. I make mandili on a, on a board where we, we roll out these sheets of pasta and you get this really cool pattern in it. A corzetti stamp is not very expensive. Corzetti is a, a, a shape from Liguria that's just stamped out and then has an imprint in it. Um, and each family used to have their own corzetti with their own sort of emblem in it. And they represent coins. And that's a really great starter shape. But like one, if you're entertaining, that will like blow your friends' minds because they're like, <laughs> oh my God, but it doesn't cost a lot of money. Then you get into like the expensive stuff, the extruders. The extruder is the most expensive thing. And I, I don't think it's necessary. I think it's fun if you want to get really into it and make right. your own rigatoni. So if you have if you have extra cash and you get the extruder, fantastic. If not, go to one of your restaurants is what you're here to exactly. say. Exactly. <laughs> now, my bigger question is this. It's not a bigger question, but I'm very curious. I have done made homemade pasta by hand. I've dug my haunches into it and I'm literally sweating and I'm like, when is this going to be done? I've also <laughs> done it in my KitchenAid. They both came out meh. My family ate it. Why? Because I starved them. I was like, if I starve you guys enough, you're going to eat whatever I put in front of you. Right. So what are the pluses and minuses to doing it by hand versus doing it in a KitchenAid or a standing mixer? And how do you know when it's done? You know, the, what we write in the book is that we encourage people to start by hand because I think you get that feel and you understand it and you understand like, you know, we give a recipe. And this is important. I talked a little bit before about not following recipes and that recipe, you know, even for me, there are days where I add my 26 egg yolks and it's too dry and it's because it's the middle of winter and it's really dry. All recipes for me, and this is how I teach my cooks at work too. Like I don't, I don't hand out recipe books on day one because I don't want them to get stuck in the recipe. I want them to get stuck in the feel. They have to have a recipe as a guide, but like if you don't teach people how to course correct, they won't understand, really understand what the dish is and what it is. So I think starting by hand is great because you really do understand like the feel how right. how that feels and is it too dry or is it too wet or do I really need all the flour in my well or can I push some of it aside? And we describe how it should feel and it should feel like Play-Doh. When it's done, it should be smooth. You should have a smooth, round ball. That doesn't mean there won't be some air bubbles that need to get out in the rolling process. And There is no advantage or disadvantage to doing it in the KitchenAid. The KitchenAid makes the same dough. I make dough in the KitchenAid all the time. I like to make it by hand because it's just my happy place but it'll yield the same thing. We do not make our pasta by hand at the at the restaurant, our dough by hand. I mean, I'm making hundreds of pounds of dough a day. It does get rolled out pretty old school. Like I don't have a giant industrial. I mean, if you look at our Instagram, you see pictures of them like with these giant sheets and really using their hands. And And I'll never change that. You know, I know a lot of these companies like make tortelli machines now where you can throw your filling and your dough in and out come these beautiful tortelli. Yeah. And to me, I just can't, I can't get there. It would take away from like, what, what is this about? But I, I think like, there's no shame in like using the KitchenAid, if, especially to save time or if like, you just don't want to get your hands dirty, but you want to make pasta. But I do, I do encourage you to 
to start with a, at least a couple times, start with the well, because it's fun. It's also like great for kids. It's a great thing to get your kids involved in and just have some fun and getting your hands dirty. So chef, before we got started here, I was telling you, I, I love how the book, I don't know. I feel like you geared it towards everybody. You were saying that I, yeah. I, for, for me as a chef, I, when I open up this book and I look and I see you have things weighed out in grams, like it makes me happy to see, oh, good. So we have weights. We know exactly how we're doing this now, as opposed to add one cup of this. Well, that was a big, that was a big fight with the, with the publisher at the beginning. And I, I really fought for that. Good. And I, but the biggest problem is then it had to all get converted. They insisted that we had both. Okay. And that was really tough because the conversions just don't always work. And I'd have this recipe that I thought worked great. And then the rest, we had a recipe tester, obviously. And she'd be like, well, it doesn't quite convert that way. And then we'd have to make a lot of decisions. I encourage people to follow the Graham recipe because that's what they were written in. I was not someone who grew up in the Graham's world. That was something that came much later as like, I think, a standard in every kitchen. And it was not a standard when I was growing up. When I was growing up, we used to have like a crab container, like containers (laughs) that the crab came in and you would measure things like the recipes would be written like 12 crab containers of flour. Crab container was a pint, but I didn't grow up in grams. And once I kind of went to Italy and sort of started understanding it, I do think there is some joy in cooking that way. You have a scale, you weigh things out. It's pretty easy. And I think people are intimidated by it because they've never done it before. And I think I was always intimidated because that's not how I learned to cook. I think it's easier. Um, But once you kind of start cooking that way, it's hard to go back. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people get that scale. You need a scale. That's the other thing. Yeah. Sometimes those cup volume measurements, they can be just a hair off, you know, or mine might be a little bit different than Marisol's or it's just, it's, I don't know, just weigh it. It's easier. Yeah. Can we talk about pasta with filling? Um, All these stuffed pastas? Yeah. Stuffed pastas are you know, it's funny. They're not my favorite to eat, but they're my favorite to make. Like I like a good stuffed pasta. I'm happy with it. Like nothing brings me greater joy than, than ravioli with red sauce. It just brings me joy. Yeah. They're fun to make. They require a lot of practice. They're tough, but they're so satisfying when you see a table of your work finished, there's just a different satisfaction than like cutting some fettuccine. And I've really focused so much of of my repertoire on making fillings that are just different. My fillings are really smooth. I've worked really hard to make my my fillings like kind of when you bite into it, you're like, why is this so creamy? Why is this so smooth? Why is this flavor so intense? And I've worked really hard to do that. And I, I think that's what makes our filled pasta special compared to other people's. Listen, there are lots of great filled pastas out there, but Usually I find that like I bite into it and I'm like, ah, it's a little too chunky. Ah, it's not like quite refined enough. And that was just a big takeaway for me when I lived in Italy and kind of working at these fancier places. And just how do I, how do I extract the most flavor out? I mean, how do you get that burst when you put that in your mouth? I know you're not a fan of rules, but what, what are just some common sense rules um, when it comes to cooking pasta that people should know? All right. There's some, there's some big ones. Do not put oil in your pasta water when you're cooking it. I don't know who started that, who started doing it, but basically what that does, when you put oil in your water, you make it so that the pasta picks up a slickness from the oil and it will never absorb the sauce. 
salt your water more than you think. The only place where your pasta is getting that flavor from is from the salt. So once you make your pasta, no matter how much sauce you're cooking in it, and we talk a lot about the marriage ceremony of, of sauce and pasta and those two things coming together, you're still going to have a bland piece of pasta, no matter how much that sauce absorbs. So salting your water. And I, I'd say the third biggest one is, is not draining your pasta into a colander. You need that pasta water. You need the starch. You need, you need to take your pasta with tongs or a colander out of the water, get some of that pasta cooking water in there that it adds flavor to the sauce, so a little bit of salt, and it also is gonna add um, viscosity from, from the starches from the pasta cooking. That's a big one. Missy Robbins, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on the book. Thank you, Chef. Thank you, that was super fun. Thanks, guys. That was Chef Missy Robbins. Her book with co-author Talia Baiocchi is Pasta, the spirit and craft of Italy's greatest food with recipes. And you can make pasta just like Missy, or you can try anyway. You'll find her recipes for spaghetti alla puttanesca, spinach a ricotta filled tortellini, and a rigatoni diavola on our website. Just go to ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Later on the hour, you'll hear from a TikTok pasta-making sensation. And coming up after the break, meet the team behind the New England Pasta Company in Avon. Because if people are going to eat carbs, they're going to eat these carbs. Right, right. You don't want to eat the stuff out of the box. You want to eat the fresh made. You can watch my husband make it. This is Seasons. We'll be right back. Seasoned, I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We've had our eye on a special local company for a while. And since we're celebrating pasta this hour, it's the perfect time to shine a light on New England Pasta Company and Beans & Co. in Avon. They're owned by Kim and Scott Morrison. One side of their gourmet shop is a grab-and-go dinners and pastas made from scratch. The other side is a cafe with, trust me, unbelievable breakfast sandwiches. It was created to be an inclusive workplace for adults with IDD, intellectual and developmental disabilities. Kim and Scott are not just serving up fresh pasta and coffee in their community, they are cooks on a mission. Their motto, everyone belongs. Plum visited the shop to talk first with Kim about that mission and then get tips from head pasta maker, Scott. Small almond milk latte, thank you. All right, I'm hanging out with Kim Morrison here at the New England Pasta Company and Beans and & Co. And uh, this place is absolutely gorgeous, Kim. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we've put a lot of heart and soul into how we want people to feel when they walk in the door. So, mission accomplished. It's kind of like a vibe. <laughs> it's a great vibe. That's it what is. people say. They like is. They walk in as like a big hug that they walk into. So That's a really great way to Glad. look at it. So you guys provide quite a service here. You run the combined cafe, like the coffee, right? And then we have, of course, the pasta shop here. That's two of our favorite things. Talk about kind of how these things go together or why they're here together. Oh, I would love to. So New England Pasta Company is our first business and our baby. And we've been in business for almost 27 years in a couple of different locations. This is our, you know, this is the fourth place that we've been in our, in our largest location. 
And when we moved in here about eight and a half years ago, we had all this space and I had lots of dreams and we decided to uh, put an, a cafe in. A simple breakfast and lunch, not dinner. This is, you know, we got out of the restaurant and hotel business for a reason. And so, we, yeah, <laughs> it was a good move. So we're home at night, you know, we have children, so we wanted to make sure we had quality family time. So the cafe, I would say it was maybe four years ago, we were getting ready to sign a, another lease here at New England Pasta Company, and we were e examining all aspects of our business. I sat down with a dear friend of mine. Uh, we started talking about our children, and, and both of our girls have Down syndrome. Her daughter's a year older than my daughter, but they were getting close to aging out of the school system. And as a special needs parent, we all know that that's that cliff that they're coming to the edge of and what's going to happen afterwards. So I just kind of threw out there, like, what if we tweak the cafe a little bit and go to counter service, which was kind of a trendy thing a few years ago and um, still is, and let our girls have a job. Okay, so that idea just snowballed as we started talking about it, and it didn't take us long to realize that we were onto something pretty special, and that's how Beans was born. So it's a coffee cafe, or a cafe that serves coffee. I wouldn't call us a, we don't want to be known as just a coffee shop. Okay. We have really delicious breakfasts, really delicious lunches, and great coffee. But the most important thing is our staff. We're a 50-50 inclusive model. My daughter grew up working in the pasta company alongside a typical, typical staff, you know, peer support. And the things she's learned has been directly because of that you know, one-on-one, -on -one, and not just being around just adults with special needs, but having that 50-50 model. And that was super important to us because that's, in our opinion, real life. So when Beans came to be and opened three years ago, um, it was just a great compliment to what we do here at New England Pasta Company. Pasta Company is different. We are gourmet to go, fresh pasta, raviolis, desserts, cookies, all kinds of things, everything to make your whole meal with COVID and everything like that, our business did really well. We are very much a takeout right. business. Nothing is heated here to eat here. That's our cafe. So, But they coexist beautifully. They complement each other really well. So when you had the goal of making uh, the, the shop an all-inclusive, you know, trying to have that 50% workplace, mm -hmm. what changes did you notice right off the bat? Oh, okay. So right off the bat, it was community. Commu first of all, community support, and then watching my existing customers come in and, and just feel that, that vibe like we were talking yeah. about, you know, that big hug that when you walk in and the change in my customers has been immeasurable. I could probably write a book on all the things that have happened since we opened Beans to just my customers. Not that they weren't kinder before, but boy, they just, everything just softens up when they come into Beans. Wow. You know, they love to watch our staff be so successful and learn new tasks and they're very invested in our mission. So what happens when the staff become more celebrities now and you got to pay them Oh my money. gosh, yeah, that well, that's exactly right. <laughs> Actually, you know, they are the most loyal, dependable, excited about coming to work every day. Yeah. I, I watched your TEDx talk and you talked oh. a lot about this. I was yeah. hoping you would touch on that for yeah, us a yeah. little bit. Yeah, it's, uh, there, there's something about it. It's, people feed off of that. Sure. My other staff feeds off of that. They really set a good example on, on how you need to be to be successful at your job. The fact that they love to come to work every day, they're on time, they're on point, and it's wonderful, That's really. Amazing. Yeah. Just to turn the focus back to the pasta aspect of yeah. it now. You guys have been doing this for how many years? 27. So are you tired of pasta yet? No, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love it. No, it's, it's actually, people will say, like, carbs, right? I'm like, still half my business. Yeah. Still a major part of, of what we do. 
because if people are going to eat carbs, they're going to eat these carbs. Right, right. You don't want to eat the stuff out of the box. You want to sure. eat the fresh made. You can watch my husband make it. You know, it's right there. It's. Or definitely, I want to go in there and hang out with him. Definitely, oh, you should. Some <laughs> what are some of the favorites that people like that you guys uh, make? So all of our pastas, we have four or five different flavors at a time, and it's all cut to order. So it's not like you walk in and you say, oh, I'm going to grab that box of fresh fettuccine. Uh-huh. You go up, you order, you know, egg or classic uh, black peppercorn, garlic and parsley, and then you get to pick how you want it cut. Nice. And they cut it right in front of you. So it really doesn't get any fresher than that. Wow. Or you can take the sheets home and you can make lasagnas or whatever you want to do with it. The but they cut it on the weird string thing. It's like a guitar. It's like, well, it's like it's, it goes through almost like a paper shredder. Gotcha. So, and people love to see that happen right in front of them, yeah. as well as Scott making it uh, while they're waiting. Favorites? Uh, we make an awesome butternut ravioli, okay. butternut and walnut. We make a great portobello, gorgonzola, and spinach ravioli. It's so good. Hot sausage and caramelized onion. Sounds delicious. Lots with goat cheese. and we're always, we're always looking for different flavors. When we go out to dinner, we're like, ooh, that'd be great in a ravioli. Right. You know, so it's we're always coming up with, with new flavors as well, well. I love that your story goes from when you were working in the restaurants and you yeah. saw you know, this little room with a glass window yeah. on it and there's pasta machines in there. And then when I walk in here... The first thing I noticed is this little room off to the right that has mm-hmm. glass windows on it. You <laughs> took the door off the hinges, but that's where the pasta machines are. It's kind of almost the exact same situation. It's exactly the same because people loved watching us make it. Like they would like literally their faces would be up against it. And people need to see that happen because it is special. Like that machine in there is right from Italy. You can't find that anywhere. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to go in here and see some pasta. Absolutely. Um, what you guys are doing here is absolutely incredible. Oh, it's, thank you. It's, it's awesome. We're very proud of it. <laughs> and... I think I'm going to buy some pasta to go. I'm starving. I need some of this sausage and caramelized onion. Well, I think you'll know what to do with it. We won't have to. I'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kim. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. You're hearing the sound of Scott Morrison's beloved pasta machine. I managed to wrangle Scott out of the pasta room so he could give us tips for cooking fresh pasta at home, including lasagna sheets. Scott, how much pasta do you make a week? It's probably 200 and 250 pounds of what we call sheet pasta. Yeah. And the sheet pasta is what we can then use for lasagna sheets, or we can also cut into fettuccine, linguine, angel hair. So you roll uh, out big, long sheets, So I right? roll out big, long sheets. Uh-huh. Uh, typically, that's about, to give you an idea, 12 and a half pounds at a time. So it wow. probably, if I rolled it out and stretched it out, it'd probably be 25, 30 feet. Oh, my gosh. And then that constantly gets almost kneaded like bread so i roll it through the rollers like you would at home Uh and then uh double it so it's getting uh making layers making layers Uh almost like laminated and then i bring the rollers down a little bit more laminated again so it's constantly getting kneaded and then actually getting longer because it's getting thinner and thinner until i get to the desired thinness that I want. 30 feet long. Yeah. I just pictured the grand opening of the store here being like, you're, you're sitting there with the mayor, the long sheet of pasta, instead of the big ribbon they cut, they just cut the pasta Exactly. <laughs> so there's fun, uh, there have been times where we've done spinach or uh, beet pasta or even squid ink, and people will go, holy cow, that almost looks like wallpaper. <laughs> you know, because it's, you know, it's 15 feet from my pasta right. machine, and, and I'm cool. like, edible wallpaper that may be something that you're onto something you're <laughs> yeah, onto exactly. something right there well i want to ask you about because i think one of the things that people don't talk enough about is when you get pasta you can buy the box you know the barilla the whatever you're buying from the grocery store and that's fine but a fresh pasta much better pasta of course but the cooking process is a little bit different can you talk about the differences of cooking your fresh pasta at home sure. versus cooking like a dry box pasta 
actually with any pasta, you really want salted water. And we also tell you, don't put oil in your water because the oil just sits on top. Never put oil and in And then when you're, when you're taking your pasta out, your sauce that you're making can't stick to the pasta. Right, and if you put too much so, oil in the water, the water then can't hit 212 degrees, which then the water gets too hot and actually overcooks the outside of the pasta for the inside of the pasta. Exactly. Science. So, <laughs> right. So with dry pasta, it's probably 9, 10, 11 minutes in boiling water, right. boiling salted water. Ours is probably anywhere from a minute to two and a half minutes, depending on the thickness. Pappardelle might be two and a half. And then from there, we always used to tell people, we used to have instructions. Once you drop the pasta in the boiling water, don't answer that phone. Now we're talking 27 years ago when people still had that corded phone, <laughs> so you had to go across the kitchen. But uh, now we would probably say, don't answer that text, because it's literally only about two minutes. And then you just really want to just scoop it out of that water and then put it in your pan that you have your sauce yeah, in. Your sauce and then right. to toss it nicely with that and then plate it. And we want that water so, to be like a rolling boil, like, like rocking and rolling, correct. not just a little bit boiling. Right. Yeah, that's another thing is I think sometimes people want to get it done quickly. And again, right. it's only two minutes. So you can wait that extra 45 seconds, a uh -huh. minute and a half to get that good boil going. If, if you really want to get it boiling faster, too, I think if you cover it, correct, that water will start boiling a little yeah. bit faster. And don't well. watch it, because I think that does work. It makes a big difference. <laughs> I, I stare at it. I'm like, what is happening right now? Why won't this go? How about the raviolis? So how do you tell when the raviolis are done? So the raviolis will be done uh, typically the same thing, about three minutes, but they'll float. Right. Just like uh, raviolis will float, tortellinis will float, gnocchis will float. And then once they start floating to the top, that's when you start taking them out. And you pull them out, throw them in your sauce, and Throw them in go. your sauce, and you're good to go. Oh, that's great. And how about, uh, so we're making, let's say we get some sheets to make lasagna out of, right? We don't need to pre-cook that, do we? Can we just put that right in lasagna Correct. and cook it? Correct, yep. So all the fresh lasagna sheets that we make, you can just build your, your lasagna as you normally would. You don't have to add extra sauce or anything. Those sheets will cook in that 45 minutes it takes to, to bake your lasagna. Unless you're making one of those, you know, <laughs> Uh, pans for uh, a football team where that might be an hour and a half. A little bit longer. Yeah. A little bit longer. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, Scott, we appreciate it. Some great oh, tips right there. You're very welcome. Kim, Scott, thank you guys so much for having us here at Beans & Co. and the New England Foster Company. I can't wait to give you all of my money. <laughs> well, we look forward to taking it. <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks for having us. That was Kim and Scott Morrison, co-owners of New England Pasta Company and Beans & Co. in Avon. Our producer Robin recommends the garlic and parsley pasta. Chef Plum is about to rave about an egg sandwich. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Honestly, Marisol, it was one of the best egg sandwiches I've ever had. I tip my hat to the chef. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, you'll meet Ryan Peters of Peters Pasta. Millions and millions of people watch his pasta-making videos on TikTok, and you'll never know where he'll pop up next to make a fresh ball of pasta dough. Why not do it at a NASCAR race or whatever? Like it just, it, nothing feels out of the ordinary anymore. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. The seasoned, I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Our final guest this hour is a TikTok phenom and professional chef. 
who may be coming to a city near you, or a sports arena, or a Walmart. Chef Plum spoke with him about his unique pop-up pasta content. Ryan Peters is a chef and the content creator behind Peters Pasta, based in Pittsburgh. He's become famous on TikTok for posting mesmerizing videos and making fresh pasta in unusual paces. And that is an understatement, Ryan. I got to be honest, man. Every time I look at you, you are someplace. I, I jokingly said before we started this, where's the next place? On a hot air balloon or off a cliff? Are you going to do it while you're like free diving, mixing pasta up? This is a crazy job you have. Yeah, it's uh, definitely turned into something that I could have never imagined. It started off with really like no expectations for this whole series of my content, but it's really unraveled into this thing that is kind of out of control at this point. Like I just, at this point, like no place I go to feels weird. It feels just all natural. Like why not do it at a NASCAR race or whatever? Like it just, it, nothing feels out of the ordinary anymore. So I want to just describe really quick what it is that you do. So people are more, you know, we went over a little bit in the intro, but you literally go to places or get contacted by people and then you make video content of yourself with you know your hands or just maybe your upper body and you're mixing eggs and flour and making pasta. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of what my content was prior to this travel thing was me making pasta out of my home. And uh, about, I'd say, nine or 10 months ago, I kind of like everybody was during this pandemic, I was sick of stuck being at home. You know, I had already had prior connections with the Steelers and the Penguins here in Pittsburgh. So I was like, okay, I'm going to use those do something with those teams. And then maybe I'll travel to like DC or Cleveland or something. And it'll be a fun little thing. And I kicked off the series and all of a sudden, like just the messages started coming in of, of places inviting me out to do these things. And I was like, why can't I make pasta anywhere? Like, I could go literally anywhere in the world with this thing. And why do I need to make pasta dough in a kitchen? I can bring a table anywhere in the country and pop up anywhere. And it just so happened that people really enjoyed watching that type of content too. I got lucky that it wasn't just a total bust. Like people really enjoyed watching it by the millions. And it's turned into this really, really fun and, and lucrative series that has kind of catapulted me into not only like with the food content, but it's almost kind of like travel content too, you know, because people just enjoy seeing the places I go and then being able to follow along, like, you know, the restaurants and the places that I go to in these cities as I'm there. So, and friends, I want to point out. Like chef's not there making a, a pasta dish or creating something like he's actually taking eggs and flour and making pasta dough. Uh, right. uh, it, very rarely you're actually even forming that pasta into something else, right? Right. Yeah. And that's, it's very, very base, um, <laughs> you know, for, but at the same time, like some of the cities I go to, like for when I was in Buffalo, for example, after I did, I did a couple of the videos and everything around town. We ended up making pasta shapes and we went to downtown Buffalo, set up a table. I brought some burners with me and I just started cooking pasta for people walking by and everything. So that's great. Um, yeah, at the, at the base level, it's just me making the dough, but that leaves me a lot of room for different angles I can go into and kind of elevate it from there. And how long are these videos? Yeah, usually about, you know, 26 to 30 seconds. 26 to 30 seconds, short video clips on right. TikTok, Instagram. You know, yep. I mean, social media has really become a tool for chefs all across the world right. to do incredible things, to spread their food out, even home cooks, for people to see it all over. And for you, it's become, hey, look at me making pasta underwater as I'm hanging out with sharks. Or You haven't that, done that one yet, but I think it's coming. It's only a matter of time at this point. <laughs> well, Chef, our, our listeners can't see you, obviously, because we're on radio. But I want to give them a sense of how deep your love of pasta goes. 
should we tell everybody you have a farfalle tattoo on you? And I do. Maybe... So I have the farfalle tattoo, and then I also have a big piece of wheat on my on my outside forearm. Yeah, I mean, it's I live and breathe it, and it is really, really my true passion. Pasta is so so simple. It can be flour and eggs. It can just be flour and water. But when you really learn the craft and you understand the fundamentals of it, and you practice it literally every single day, it's really easy to fall in love with. You know, it's it's one of those things that. You know, simplicity done right is is really, really incredible. And it's been fun to explore this craft as much as I have. I mean, we're talking almost 3 million people on TikTok watch you make yeah. pasta for 30 seconds at a time. It's the craziest. 10 years ago, if I told you this, you just said, what are you even talking about? Yet here we are. Yeah. I mean, two, three years, if you would have told me this, I would have <laughs> thought it was crazy. You know, it, it really has it's blown my mind. It's, you know, all my friends and peers are like, how the hell does this happen? It just shows the power of the internet, the power of social media, and really just the power of putting yourself out there and not being afraid to, you know, face critiques. Like the internet is a, is a crazy place. There's these bullies and everything, but when you put yourself out there and just share your passion with the world and aren't afraid of, you know, the critiques that you get, you know, you never know what can happen. And TikTok literally changed my life. And that's a really weird sentence to say, but it's a hundred percent true. It's, a really, really powerful platform that can really just bring light to people that, you know, for me, I was a chef in a restaurant and, right. you know, it, I didn't think that I had that, that reach or that exposure potential, but, you know, with just a few videos, it literally just transformed my career. More people watch you make pasta than most Food Network shows combined. Three yep. million people. It's really, really mind boggling. So in your videos, you always ask, what are some places that people want you to go to? Is there anywhere that you won't go? Uh, I mean, as a, as a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, I won't do Cleveland, Cincinnati, or Baltimore. Uh, those are off limits. Um, but besides that, at this point, nothing is really off limits. I'll go, I'll go underwater with sharks. Let's do it. <laughs> well, Chef, you know I love a good list. So give me your top three places that were the most, I don't know, off the wall, exotic, never thought you'd be there type places where you were just pouring these eggs into this bowl of, of flour and making a giant ball of pasta. When I was on a cruise ship, so I did Royal Caribbean a couple months ago, that was pretty wild just to be able to do it in the middle of the ocean, right? So that was a really fun one. I would say Walmart. I, I like set up shop right in the middle of a Walmart, like during <laughs> like business hours. And uh, that got just the, the reactions that that got was really, really fun. I would bet. So that was great. But I was just in LA the past week and I did a uh, Santa Monica Pier. It was funny because of not the reactions I got, but the reactions I didn't get. Interesting. Um, it was like it was something that people see like every like a normal day out there. It was it was really interesting. But yeah, I've I've just been fortunate and lucky to be able to do things in places that I could have never imagined. That at this point just don't feel they don't feel weird. It all feels normal for me to go to another you know stadium or or another like city landmark or something. It's just really really cool to see where it's taken me. A lot of people at home home cooks and stuff, check this show out and listen to this program. What about a tip for a home cook making pasta, maybe for the first or second time that couldn't quite get it right? You've done it a million times. What can you tell them? It's a question I get asked all the time. And my biggest tip is just patience. When you're making pasta dough, there's a lot of different times through the process where you think this isn't turning out right. Eventually it is going to come together. Like pasta dough isn't like a five minute thing. Like when I make a batch of pasta dough, it takes about 20, 25 minutes. And people sometimes don't understand that. Also, with that said, I always like to tell people that if it doesn't come out perfect, it's still going to be edible. The more you do it and the muscle memory and the, and the more practice that you give to it. Right. But yeah, at the end of the day, I think it's just patience and, and not getting frustrated with it and you know giving it some time. 
Let's talk a couple of tips with ingredients before I get you out of here. Uh, do you have a flour preference? What do you like? Do you like double O? Do you just use AP? Yeah. What do you like? Yeah, mainly double zero flour. But again, it's one of those things where like, just use what you have. But yeah, double zero flour is what I prefer. It's really the best for, for at least egg dough. How about the egg chef? Do you want them at room temperature? Do you want them cold? Yeah, so room temperature is always best. I like to separate them though when they're cold. And then I'll uh, let them come up to room temperature, just the yolks. But I usually, I mean, if you guys have seen, I usually just use the yolks only. Just the the flavor, the color, and the richness of a, of a whole yolk dough uh, is much better. But yeah, I'll usually separate them from, from right out of the fridge and then use them at room temperature. Ryan Peters is a chef and the content creator behind Peters Pasta, based in Pittsburgh. He's become national, world, galaxy famous on TikTok for posting mesmerizing videos of making pasta in unusual places. Ryan, I appreciate your time, my friend. Always good catching up with you, brother. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, guys. And you can find Ryan on TikTok and Instagram. Just search Peter's Pasta. If you're inspired to make your own fresh pasta, don't forget, we've got three recipes from the book Pasta by Missy Robbins on our site, ctpublic.org slash recipes. And listeners, if today wasn't enough carbs for you, join us next week for our live call-in show devoted to bread. The baker from Small State Provisions will be our guest, so you can call with your sourdough questions or shout out the baker making your favorite fresh bread in our state. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Tolarski. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.